Well, our passage here, James 4, 1 through 10, doesn't sound like a very cheery passage. And what I'm going to do today is not necessarily uh, pull out every uh, last application and meaning from it, but looking specifically at what we can learn about prayer and hindrances to prayer. And the first thing we should ask, of course, is uh, what do I mean by hindrance? I don't mean um, what keeps us from being motivated to pray. That in and of itself is a worthy discussion, a worthy thought to think about. Uh, what keeps me from praying? You know, the, uh, there's an old Burt Reynolds movie, 1978 movie, The End. And in it, he tries to commit suicide by swimming out into the ocean. And he gets way out there and he has a change of heart. And he turns back around and he says, he prays to the Lord, uh, very motivated. Uh, if you get me back in, I'll give you all my money. And so he gets, I don't know, halfway back in and he says, I'll give you half my money if you get me all the way in. And so as he gets closer and closer, the, the promise gets less and less and less. And finally he makes it to shore and he says, thanks, Lord. Um, and that's it, you know. So there's motivation for prayer. Different things motivate us. Desperation can do it. But assuming that you pray, uh, what would actually hinder your prayers from being answered in the affirmative by the Lord. Now, the starting point is this, that God delights to answer your prayers. Uh, He even commanded us to ask him uh, to pray, right? Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who asks of him? James 4, 2. You have not because you ask not. And earthly fathers, imperfect though they be, will... Uh, give good gifts to their children, will not our perfect Heavenly Father uh, delight to give us good things as well? Now, the starting point, though, is this, that he responds to the requests of his children, and not all are his children. And so, are you a child of God? That's the first most important thing uh, to get straight here. This is what Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, again, says about prayer. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Your sins have separated you from God, and you need to be reconciled to God. Have you been reconciled to God? That is what the good news is about. It's a good news of reconciliation. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 6 through 11, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
More than that, we also received in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were actually enemies of God prior to reconciliation. And this is not our um, default philosophy and thought in our culture today. That is, it's sort of everybody's a child of God in every sense of the word. And, and what we find in Scripture is, in fact, reality is, is that you're an enemy of God naturally. You're hostile to God, and that's evidenced by your sin. You need to be reconciled. And we're reconciled in the person of Jesus Christ who came to bring about that reconcil- reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ came for that purpose, that he might take your trespasses, the penalty of your trespasses, the guilt of your trespasses and sins against him. And how is it that you can be reconciled to God? It's through faith. Another passage that speaks of this is Colossians 1, verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind... Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It's by faith. It's not simply general faith. If you sort of have faith in something, in someone, or sort of have general faith in God. No, it's a particular point of faith that Christ came to be your substitute. Would you place your faith in him that he has received the, um, your guilt, that he received it, that his righteousness has been credited to you? Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, what? To bring you to God, to reconcile you. So now that's where you are. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you're reconciled to God. If you've never done that, and even sitting here, even in a very Presbyterian quiet way, uh, just in the, the quietness of your heart, if even today in this moment, you place your faith in the person of Jesus Christ for reconciliation, the Bible says you are reconciled to God at this moment. And you have a new, uh, wonderful, reconciled, not just forgiven, but completely right relationship with God. And he loves you and he delights to hear your requests and your prayers and your communication. So what is it that actually hinders your prayers from being answered in the affirmative by God? Well, what we find in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and we could look at other passages in Scripture with other particular pointed application. But here for today, what we see is God will not answer your prayer if in answering your prayer, it panders to the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is, he is going to foster in you a relationship, a friendship, and not a friendship with the world. 
And so if you ask for something that will do the opposite, he's not going to answer your prayer. God, for instance, will not help you covet. James 4.1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James 4.2, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You want something physical, something that you don't have, something that somebody else has. That's what coveting is. Exodus 20.17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. But isn't that the American way? Don't we seek to foster the things that we don't have and we don't really need? I have to have a television to be happy, and it would be helpful if it was an OLED television. I've got to drive, not just a car, but the right car to be happy. I must use the right dishwashing detergent, so say the commercials, lest my crystal have spots on it. It might ruin my life. I must buy the right snack foods for my children, or I might be less than... When, I, when we were, had kids, it was Sunny D mom or Kool-Aid mom. I don't know what it is today, a Go-Gurt mom or a Danimals mom or whatever, right? You know, your certain expectations. If you don't have that, then you're just not all that. If I'm a senior citizen, I might be a senior citizen, but I'm not like those frumpy senior citizens of past years. I ride a Harley. I'm hip. I buy and do hip things. I'm a mom, but I'm not like those frumpy moms of yesteryear. And so on and on and on it goes. The commercials, the advertisements that would make us think that somehow uh, life is achieved by gaining these things that we don't have. And James says that this desire for covenant can lead even to murder, to fighting, to quarreling. I see that in verse 2. Um, and if I don't have these physical things, I just can't be happy. So don't pray the prayer of Janis Joplin. You know, the one, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Or similar. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So God is not going to answer what reinforces your coveting. Ask God to give you what you covet. He will not. He will not help you break the command. Another way of putting this is he is not going to help you become a better idolater. The Bible speaks of coveting as idolatry in several places. If you're taking notes, Colossians 3, 5 is one of the places that that's mentioned. If you seek life from physical things, if you believe that you're only going to be happy when you have the right house or the right possessions or the right kids or the right spouse or job or whatever, he will not answer that request. He will not aid you in your idolatry. The Old Testament believers were called adulterers when they followed other gods other than the one true God. And similarly, James says in verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, what does James mean by the world? After all, doesn't the Gospel of John say, for God so loved the world? In fact, in the epistle, 
of John, 1 John 2, 15, he also says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we see that even the Gospel John is using the term world in two different ways. And so God loves people all over the world. But here in James, there's a different meaning for the term. And uh, Simon Kistemacher quotes this in his commentary on James. The whole system of humanity, its institutions, structures, values, and mores as organized without God. So it's a world system that is organized without and opposed to God. And James, excuse me, John goes on to further clarify what he means in the first epistle, chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but in the world. Now, many Christians will have kind of a dualistic view of the world, that the spiritual is good uh, and the physical is evil. And that's not a Christian teaching in the scriptures. The Gnostics in the second century taught this. They taught this dualism that, that the spiritual is good and the, and the flesh, physical, is evil. That's a very platonic thought as well. But the Bible presents God as the creator of the world, and the stuff of the world is good. Now, we understand that the world has become cursed. The earth is cursed. There are thorns. There are thistles. There are problems with it. But it's not evil in and of itself. And as we found out when we studied the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8, we learned that the the creation itself is groaning for its redemption, its recreation. It'll be redeemed from the bondage of decay and from death. And it will be made right. But in and of itself... Uh, is not evil. We can, we can look out at the sunset. We can uh, enjoy the company of another person. We can enjoy a good meal. We can thank the Lord for those things properly um, because these are good gifts from the Lord. But we need to keep it in perspective. The world, the world is going to enjoy, the earth is going to, uh, at some point, face uh, destruction. Not complete destruction, recreation, but the world in the state that we know it right now is not going to endure. Nothing physically that we see here is going to endure. And so it just makes sense that we put our focus on those things that will endure, those things that are more valuable. Have your hearts set on those things. John said it this way, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In 1 Corinthians 7.31, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of the world, of this world, is passing away. Jesus Christ himself said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust does not corrupt, right? Thieves do not break in and steal. So pray first and foremost for the things that endure, for holiness, for growth in the love of God, for the growth in the love of people, uh, that God would work in you uh, his grace to grow in grace. 
Danny Werfel, a famous quarterback from uh, University of Florida, uh, big-time football college player, uh, in case you were living in Iraq at that time, uh, he was, and made it to the pros, and then after that uh, left to work for a ministry called Desire Street Ministries in the worst part of New Orleans, immediately after he finished uh, in the NFL. And what happened right after that was he and his young family uh, experienced Katrina right after that, and they lost everything. I remember uh, reading about that. He talked about losing everything, things like wedding pictures, you know, very uh, musical instruments, a guitar he really loved that was meaningful for him. Uh, but he went on to say, I've got a roof over my, heads now, my head now, and my, my family is with me, and I see the difference between needs and wants. Um, and then he went on to talk about the situation that he saw in the NFL. So many NFL players whose lifestyle would rise to the level of their income as they got into the NFL only uh, when they retired to enter into a time of crisis. Uh, the money was gone. The status was gone. What were they going to do? John Newton, the hymn writer, um, in one of his hymns, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's really a story. It's really an autobiographical um, testimony about asking the Lord to grow. He was asking the Lord for the right things. And even when you ask for the right things, you might get it in a way you don't expect and maybe don't even want. He starts out, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answered my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Have you ever prayed for that? Lord, just make me holy, make me holy now. You know, just do it, Right? God answered his prayer, but that wasn't how he answered it. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied, "'I answer prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ "'from self and pride to set thee free "'and break thy schemes of earthly joy "'that thou mayst find thy all in me.'" So even as we desire and pray to grow in ways that are good prayers, that God may answer those prayers in ways uh, that we uh, do not desire, that we haven't planned and yet answered our prayers. This is called The Prayer of a Confederate Soldier. Uh, it's recorded in a book called God on Mute, Engaging in the Silence of Unanswered Prayer. I don't know where the author got this. I don't know if it's actually The Prayer of a Confederate Soldier, uh, but you'll understand uh, the relevance of it. He says, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. 
I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I had hoped for, almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am, among men, most richly blessed. Now, what's the application? So should we never ask for physical things from God? Well, James says you have not because you ask not. In fact, we're told to do that in the book of James, chapter 5, verse 13. We hadn't read that uh, up to this point, but he says, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Goes on to say, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. By the way, we've done that in this church. If you want elders to come and pray over you and anoint you with oil, uh, as a result of a sickness, we have done it and we would do that again. So yes, it is good and right as we live in this world as physical beings uh, that God created, uh, his good creation. Uh, God knows that we have these needs and it is good to pray for those things, uh, keeping everything in perspective. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. I used to think when I was a kid, that was a really strange prayer. You know, I was thinking of a crusty piece of bread. You know, what's the big deal about a crusty piece of bread? Proverbs 38 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, but give me only my daily bread. And so we see here in Scripture, daily bread is our needs. God, give us what we need, our food and other needs. It's not only an approach to prayer, this mindset, but it's also an approach to life that results in prayer. If you live as if God doesn't exist, you won't pray. Or if you pray as if your life is about you becoming more enslaved to your own covetousness, then you don't understand life. You won't get what you ask for. Because God is going to give his children what they truly need. If you ask God to make you more part of the world, to feed your sinful nature, to do the things that will aid the plan of the devil, God will say no. So what do we do? How do we pray? Humble yourselves and draw near to God. That's what our text says. We're to draw near to God. According to verse 8, how do you do that? Well, you admit your sinful desires and you start there. Verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. How do we do that? We humble ourselves. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that will result in submission to the Lord's authority John calls it abiding in Christ. James calls it drawing near to God through humbleness and submission. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James 5, 17, uh-oh, I'm done for. You know that passage, you ever thought of that before? Prayer of a righteous, righteous man, righteous person is powerful, effective. Well, that counts me out. Well, let's take a look at it in context. 
What does the righteous man do? That was verse 17. Verse 16, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. But when you pray for something, when you pray for something, you come with a humble heart. You don't come with a morose sorrow over your sin, but authentically confessing it and then joyfully appreciating the forgiveness that you have and the relationship you have with God. As the psalmist said, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Here's what Martin Luther, the reformer, said on the matter. When you become aware of your sin and frightened by it, you must not allow the sin to remain in your conscience. This would only lead to despair. Rather, just as your awareness of sin flowed to you from Christ, right? You received a proper awareness of sin from Christ. So you must pour your sin back on him to free your conscience. So be careful you do not become like the misguided people who allow their sin to bite at them and eat at their hearts. You throw your sins on Christ when you firmly believe that Christ's wounds and suffering carried and paid for your sins. For if you don't do this and you try to quiet your conscience through your own sorrow and penance, you will never find peace of mind and you will finally despair in the end. If you try to deal with sin in your conscience... Let it remain there and continue to look at it in your heart. Your sins will become too strong for you. They will seem to live forever. But when you think of your sins as being on Christ and boldly believe that he conquered them through his resurrection, then they are dead and gone. Sin can't remain on Christ. His resurrection swallowed up sin. Jesus Christ said it this way in the parable in Luke chapter 18. Then some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Again, why are they there? They're there to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the others, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God's not going to answer your prayer if it panders to the world, to the flesh, to the devil. He's going to answer prayers that foster a relationship with him. And that comes as you humbly approach him in confession of your weakness, of your sin. As you draw near to God in prayer, he will draw near to you. And I'm going to end the sermon today with a quote from E.M. Bounds. If you're not familiar with E.M. Bounds, he's somebody that knows a thing or two about prayer. And he says this, That which brings the praying soul near to God is humility of heart. That which gives wings to prayer is lowliness of mind. Pride, self-esteem, and self-praise effectually shut the door of prayer. He who would come to God must approach the Lord with self hidden from his eyes. Humility is a rare Christian grace of great price in the courts of heaven. Entering into and being able and being an inseparable condition of effectual praying. It gives access to God when other qualities fail. Its full portrait is found only in the Lord Jesus. Our prayers must be set low before they can ever rise high. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you for the reality that Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who is in prayer has come in a heart that is right before you. And we pray that you would give us that heart, that we would come humble and lowly, that we would confess our sins, that we would come to you desiring um, a fuller and a deeper and a richer relationship, that we might grow in grace. And Father, that in an appropriate way, that we would come to you with our needs, even as you have commanded us to come and to trust in you and to trust that you would provide them for us like a loving father. And we thank you um, for the privilege of prayer. We thank you for the privilege of real relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And let's continue to uh, worship and to pray.